Hi, I'm Dave Reinersman. Welcome to the Marvels of Science, a podcast about the science and tech of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. All your favorite heroes and villains from Hawkeye and Agatha Harkness to Searcher and Thor. Speaking of the King of Asgard, briefly, today's topic is Thor's hammer, or more specifically, where he got it, a neutron star. Here with me to get to the hearts of these dying stars is Bob Lindner, our science expert today. Bob is an astrophysicist with a PhD from Rutgers University, a Jersey boy, although these days he busies himself running his company, Veda Data Solutions, applying data science and machine learning to the healthcare industry. Welcome to the podcast, Bob. Hey, Dave. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you very much. And our color commentator is Mariko Sugimura, a friend of mine setting the record for the greatest distance between guests, recording from Hokkaido, Japan. Thanks for coming on the show, Mariko. Hi, Dave. I'm actually back in Tokyo. Oh, you are? Yeah. <laughs> About a year ago. <laughs> what? What? How did I miss that? Okay, Mariko, you and I studied education together, but how are you with science? Did you do well at it in school? Oh, oh. <laughs> I was a typical liberal arts major, so that's, that's all <laughs> I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> How much of it do you think you retained, the stuff that you learned? Maybe I might remember something from elementary school, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I'm going to give you a lot of impossibly hard questions then. Uh-oh. <laughs> so Thor's hammer, Mjolnir. Mjolnir? What's Mjolnir? We have competing explanations for how it was created. In Thor's first appearance, his father Odin tells us that Mjolnir was forged in the heart of a dying star. Maybe that's just poetic license because in Avengers Infinity War, Thor needs a replacement after his sister broke his favorite toy. So he goes to Nidavellir. Nidavellir is a forge where terrible, crazy weapons are made. Thor says, Nidavellir's forge harnesses the blazing power of the neutron star. So it's not so much made in the heart of a star, but a structure created around it. Future topic, Nidavellir and Dyson spheres. Somebody write that down. Write that down. But this episode, let's talk about the neutron stars themselves. And let's break down the term first. Mariko? Yes. Quiz time. What's a neutron? It's one of the little things that are at the center. It's inside atom, right? Yes, right in the center of an atom. The Greeks coined the term atom, meaning basically unsplittable, because they thought it was the fundamental unit of matter. Everything is made of atoms, and atoms just are. But we took a closer look, and we found protons, neutrons, and electrons in there. At the center, protons and neutrons, and sort of orbiting, in a way, around them, electrons. And then we took a closer look at protons and neutrons and found a whole new mess of stuff. But let's leave the quantum mechanics aside for now and talk about the neutrons. Protons and neutrons are heavier. Electrons, very, very light. Protons are positively charged. Electrons are negatively charged. And neutrons, no charge, neutral. Okay, and Bob, I promise we're coming to you in a moment. But first, Mariko, here's a very general question that's maybe mm -hmm. harder because I've discovered on this podcast that these very broad, seemingly simple questions can be a lot trickier than we think. So quiz time part two. Mm -hmm. What's a star? Star is kind of like a planet, but it's burning. It's glowing themselves. It's not like, I don't think Earth is a star because it's not burning or glowing itself. I agree that Earth is probably not a star. Yeah. <laughs> Bob, it's finally your turn. And thank you for your patience. How's that for a definition of a star? I think it's pretty straightforward and it passes. We're definitely not burning or glowing. Basically, if you just 
took more mass and piled it on top of the earth, at some point it would kick off and ignite. I think it's a fair explanation. So if you add enough mass to any anything, basically, eventually the pressure will start fusing things at the center and yeah. boom, you have a star. Yeah, you know, it, in some respects, the stars and the matter in the universe acts in a pretty simple manner. And that is, you can take piles of mass and if it gets large enough, the pressure in the center gets so high that you are crushing the atoms together and they start to fuse. And when they fuse together, they release energy, pushes the atoms apart and produces outward pressure. And that'll balance the gravitational pull of all the matter that's around it. And then at some point, those forces exactly balance. When that balances, that's called hydrostatic equilibrium. And that kind of sets the size of the star. We're going to put neutron and star together later on, but we need to build up to it a bit. So before we get there, I want to take a look at Odin's phrase, a dying star. And before we get to a star's death, Bob, I guess we should talk about how stars are born, not like Barbara Streisand and Lady Gaga. I mean, star stars. So what's that process like? How do we get a star? Oh, yeah. So, you know, the universe is full of dust and gas, largely. Before there are stars, you basically have huge clouds, light years long clouds of dust and gas. And it gravitationally attracts other clouds. Just through the random nature of the distribution of the matter, some clouds are bigger than others, and they're going to pull other mass into them. At some point, it's collecting and collecting so much dust and gas and hydrogen gas that the center gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And instead of just constantly collapsing, the center gets hot enough to ignite nuclear fusion with the hydrogen that's being fused to kind of give some outward pressure. And that means that the collapse stops and once it ignites, kind of blows away the outer layers of gas. And then you have a star that's left. Stars tend to form in superstructures of this dust and gas, and they tend to form in clump. In a galaxy, they'd be referred to as a star forming region. And they're called stellar nurseries when you sort of have a large molecular cloud that's, that's, that's producing hundreds of stars. And as stars are born then, so they must die. Yeah. I think it's important to note that we have all these words in quotes. We're not saying stars are alive. Um, but Mariko, what do you know about the death of a star? I think it kind of like it changes colors. Like I think as it gets old, it gets reddish and then um, maybe it explodes at the end. That's what I think. <laughs> it's my understanding there are a lot of possibilities depending on the mass of the star. So that I think covers a couple of different possibilities, right? Yeah. It exploding is definitely a viable and somewhat common outcome <laughs> of the death of a star. Actually, it's really interesting. In stellar physics, we know the lifespan and the evolution of a star pretty well theoretically based on mainly just two parameters. One is the initial mass of the star. How much you know hydrogen gas are you, are you going to start with? And what's the metallicity of the star? And that is how many other heavier elements besides hydrogen are kind of mixed into that suit. And if you know just those two things, you know from a textbook side pretty well what's going to happen to that star. I would say it's fair to say they definitely do die. And the reason is, simply put, they run out of fuel. Hydrogen gas is the thing that they're burning in their core to hold themselves up, right? So they're taking hydrogen, turning it into helium in this really violent reaction in their core, and that gives them this pressure to kind of stand on. But there's only a finite amount of hydrogen in every star, and eventually they do use it up. And when they use it up, depending on how much mass is there, that will produce one of three main outcomes for the star. It can kind of fade out and turn into a white dwarf. It can crush past a white dwarf if it's too heavy for the white dwarf to support it and turn into a neutron star. And if it's very heavy, it will crush past a neutron star and kind of turn into a black hole. So if a star has just the right mass and the right 
composition, we might get a neutron star. Is that a common thing or which of those is the most common scenario, I guess? Oh, that's a fantastic question. So there's about a billion neutron stars in the galaxy, hundreds of billions of, of stars total. So I would say without being too wrong with the precise number, I'm going to say that it's common enough that we see them all over the place. And I guess that means, are they particularly long-lived then? Because we're talking about the death of it, but if the neutron star is, sounds like a bit of a final state, does it last for a billion years? Or... That, that's a great, that is a great question. Generally speaking, yeah, it's, it is going to last for a really long time. So white dwarfs and neutron stars, and black holes for that matter, all have something in common, and that's that they're not, they don't need to burn hydrogen fuel to, to stay around. They are being held up by other quantum mechanical forces, and they are glowing just because they're so hot. The black hole isn't glowing, but white dwarfs and neutron stars are just so hot that they are cooling off. And they will just cool off, for lack of a better phrase, forever until they get cool and too dim to see. But that's kind of it. They don't have an engine anymore. They're just sort of done. They're stuck. And unless more mass falls on top of them, they aren't going to turn into a new kind of star either. Wow. There's no process that's like degrading them anymore. So they just exist until... <laughs> yeah. You know, something that's really astonishing, you know, that I learned about the universe that isn't appreciated quite as much about it. And it is that lots of things in our universe are a one-way street, right? Hmm. So people like to think that the universe is infinite and, and kind of goes on forever. And they have this sense that it's in a steady state. In reality, all of the stars have hydrogen fuel that will be used up. And then the future of the universe is actually going to look a lot different than the current universe. Mariko, does this, do these sort of big questions make you feel small sometimes? <laughs> I mean, sometimes I, sometimes I think of the size of the universe and these huge things like the nuclear fusion happening on the scale of enormous bodies of gas and things. Right. I still have to pay my taxes? All that's happening and I got to I got to go to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. What does that sort of thing make you feel? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I try to look up the stars or like the night sky when I, you know, when I have troubles and then I, I just want to make feel like all my troubles are so small. Like that's what I do. Like I look up the stars and, you know, think about how big the universe could be. But at the same time, it's just so hard to grasp, you know, how enormous it is. And I cannot even imagine what's out there and what's outside of it. I agree. It's just every everyday things seem so trivial. I mean... <laughs> The numbers a lot of times in astronomy are just, I mean, literally too big to wrap our heads around. We can't picture what a billion really means. The comparison I like a lot is that a million seconds is, I think, 11 days, and a billion seconds is like about 31 years. The problem is they just sound like big, and all we can wrap our heads around is big. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about when you were talking about neutron stars lasting for trillions of years. It's sort of terrifying. So, Mariko, we've talked about neutrons and stars. Mm -hmm. So why do you think we call a neutron star a neutron star? Best guess. Probably because it doesn't have a lot of other stuff. I think, Bob, that's the pop sci version of neutron stars that I know. They're stars made of basically neutrons. But is that the real answer? And then what happened to all the protons and electrons? You know, when a star dies, it's all the same matter, more or less, that was in the star. It may have blown off some outer layers towards the end of its life. And so let's go back to the story of the star has a furnace in its core that's burning hydrogen in order to hold itself up. But when it runs out of energy, now there's no upward pressure to hold up the star. At that point, gravity is in the driver's seat, and it's going to crush it all down. And there were 
electrons, protons, and neutrons in this mix of this star. What ends up happening is that there's so much pressure and force from the mass that's being crushed down that more or less the protons and electrons get slammed together and they turn into neutrons. It just slams them together. They used to be there and now everything got turned into neutrons. So a neutron star basically just is a ball of neutrons. It's so wild to think about. Yeah. In fact, the density is very similar to that of an atomic nucleus itself. So in a fairly literal sense, it is kind of like one large atomic nucleus floating in the sky because the uh, neutrons themselves are so densely packed together. Okay. This gets right into my next question. Mariko, imagine you're super strong. Let's say you're Thor. Mm -hmm. I'm Thor Odinson. And you have a teaspoon of neutron star in your hand, like a teaspoon amount. You're not holding an actual spoon. Mm -hmm. By the way, this comparison is not new. But it's always teaspoons. I don't know why people are obsessed with a teaspoon, exactly that measurement of a neutron star, but it's everywhere. So let's say you've got a teaspoon of neutron star in your hand. There is basically no way, by the way, you will know this number off the top of your head. But what's your best guess about how many tons that teaspoon weighs? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I think it's super heavy because it's super dense. So it must be gazillions of tons. (laughs) I think gazillion is appropriate. NASA tells me that it's 4 billion tons, which is so many tons. (laughs) Bob, how did the neutron star, how could such a small amount of matter weigh so much? What's wild about it is, you know, all of the mass is still there. So, you know, the way that I think about it is a volume of that size of neutron star handheld amount of neutron star material can have the equivalent mass of an entire mountain. All of the same subatomic particles, it's just you sort of strip out the space between them. It really makes you realize and think twice about what everyday objects are. Now, if you're holding an object in your hands, it is mostly empty space, actually. There's electrons and protons and neutrons in there, but they're all so far apart from each other and so small that if you actually analyzed every point of 3D space of your object, everyday objects on Earth that we interact with that are sort of held together by their own chemical forces are largely empty space. And so if you strip out that empty space by crushing it down, that's where you get these orders of magnitudes increase in density. So all of the mass, astonishingly, is still there. It's just been crushed down into a tiny ball. I've heard neutron stars sometimes described as sort of failed black holes, like not quite massive enough to collapse. That feels kind of insulting to neutron stars. But I guess since black holes are the most massive objects we know of, neutron stars are second in line, maybe? Is that right? Oh, that's a really interesting question. So you said black holes are the most massive object and neutron stars are second. What's interesting about that is any particular neutron star compared to some other objects that we talk about commonly that are in space, like, you know, galaxies or galaxy Mm. clusters or even large stars, a neutron star can't get too large. Otherwise, it'll end up collapsing into a black hole. So any individual neutron star is on average not, it's typically not one of the most massive things in the sky, simply one of the most dense. So Bob, what kind of surface does a neutron star have if it's so oh, yeah. dense? Like what kind of material is makes the surface of the neutron star? I love this question. So you can think about it as the most perfect sphere that you've ever seen. The density of the material is super high. So it's 
higher than all things that we would consider hard and solid on the earth. But what's interesting about that material is that the stuff on earth that makes regular objects hold its shape is chemical forces, right? The mm. molecules are kind of bonding with each other so that my coffee cup feels hard and looks like a cup. In a neutron star, there's so much gravity that it's pulling the surface into this very perfect sphere. And it's not solid in the sense that we would typically think of it because it's the density is way higher than solids that we're aware of. So it, it is incredibly hard and perfectly smooth and very hot. So if you try to stand on one of these stars, the gravity is so strong that it would take you and crush you down and smash you into more or less a one atom tall layer and spread <laughs> you across the surface of the, of the neutron wow. star. And so it is pulling itself into spheres, you know, so mm. planets and, and stars and even neutron stars, they're all spheres in the sky because at some point gravity is the most important force and gravity will pull things in, into spheres. I see. Wild. Wow. The idea that the neutron star is probably the most perfect sphere in nature. That's crazy. I guess there might be one that's maybe more perfect depending on how you think about it. And that could be maybe the event horizon of a black hole. But I guess that is actually subject to some distortions depending on if the black hole is spinning or if there's other matter nearby. That is a great segue. <laughs> Mariko, I did some Wikipedia-ing. Mm -hmm. And I found some more crazy numbers because every number about a neutron star is crazy. I'd like you to take another wild guess mm -hmm. at something. Neutron stars spin and they spin very fast. Oh. How fast do you think the fastest spinning neutron star spins <gasps> in rotations per whatever unit of measure you like? For some reference, our sun spins once every 25 days, <laughs> give or take. Um, I'll give you a hint. It's a lot faster than that. A lot faster. Okay. A lot faster. Mm, maybe it spins maybe in, in seconds. Is it too fast? Nope. Keep going faster. Oh, it's faster? How many spins in one sec? Think about it like oh, that. Oh, hundreds? Hundreds. I read about a neutron star called PSR J17482446 AD. Catchy. Which I've decided just now to rename Mariko's star. <laughs> That's a made up word. Who was made up? Thank you. This neutron star spins 716 times per second. That's about 43,000 times a minute. If you were standing on the neutron star's surface, you'd be moving at about 25% the speed of light. Oh. I should mention these numbers are record numbers. That's the fastest we've ever found, at least on the Wikipedia page. But generally speaking, neutron stars spin very, very quickly. Wow. Bob, why? Why do they spin so fast? You know, I've got two daughters, and the reason why they're spinning fast, I can see frequently when they're playing on the playground. When you're on a merry-go-round, get it going real fast, you hop on, and then you kind of move to the center of this thing, and then it ends up spinning really, really fast, and you have to hold on and be careful or it might toss you off. And so what's happening there is called the conservation of angular momentum, which basically says if you add up how much stuff you have and how fast it's spinning, that produces a, a quantity that has to be conserved even if you change the shape of your object. You can also see this demonstrated famously by figure skaters and they go and they kind of start spinning in with their arms out and then they sort of pull their arms in and the rate that they're spinning increases by a lot. The same thing can happen with stars. So when you have a massive star, actually the angular momentum that it has, it was, it was gifted early in its life. When the star forms, just the happenstance nature of the clouds that kind of came together to form the initial star gave it its angular momentum. And then the star forms and has a long life towards the end of its life as we talked about before, runs out of hydrogen. 
and starts to collapse. Well, when it collapses, it gets a lot smaller, but it still has the same angular momentum that it had as a large star. So as a same mass, same angular momentum, the difference is the large star is bigger. It spins more slowly. Now you take a lot of that mass and crush it down to be much smaller with the same angular momentum. It's going to spin a lot faster mm. than it could before. It seems so basic. <laughs> I, I think we expect a lot of times like, oh, well, what happens is, you know, quantum physics and crazy astronomical phenomenon. And like, well, it was spinning before and it got smaller. So it spins faster. Mariko, it is game show time. I'm going to give you three names of kinds of neutron stars, two of which are real. And I'd like you to try to identify which one is the fake one. Okay. Which one I made up. Okay. They are Pulsar, Gravatar, and Magnetar. Which one's fake? Magnetar. Magnetar, they are some of the most crazy, weird objects in space, but they are real. <laughs> oh, they're real. Then it's Gravitar. Yeah, Gravatar. I just threw gravity and tar <laughs> together. Bob, each one of these pulsars and magnetars are enormous topics in themselves, but can you give us a brief description of pulsars and magnetars? Yeah, yeah, totally. This actually hits kind of close to home. So I studied radio astronomy when I did my research in astrophysics. And so pulsars were discovered by the radio waves that they emit. And they're called pulsars because when you're observing them, they were observed as, as emitting very regular pulses. And so let's go back to the story about the star that died and shrunk and started spinning really fast. Well, for some reason, and I think the root cause is still under active research, a neutron star has extremely powerful magnetic fields. One of the possible reasons why it's so strong is kind of like the conservation of angular momentum. Stars themselves have pretty strong magnetic fields. And there's something called the magnetic flux, which is basically how much magnetic field you have going through a certain amount of area. If the energy in a magnetic field is conserved and you make everything a lot smaller, then it's very likely that the magnetic field gets a lot stronger when you make the star much smaller. What happens is you have this really strong magnetic field. And to put this in perspective, very strong magnets on the surface of the earth have strengths in the range of about a Tesla or less. There's this famous image of a levitating frog that was made to levitate with a strong magnetic field. And I think the magnetic field of, in that case was about one to 10 Tesla. The magnetic fields that we're talking about, uh, neutron stars are orders of magnitude more powerful. I think you're in the range of hundreds of thousands, millions of Tesla. So there's this other interesting property that says when you have a moving magnetic field or a moving electric field, it's going to produce electromagnetic radiation. And so you've got this incredibly powerful magnetic field and it's on a it's on this neutron star that's spinning at hundreds of times per second and it's basically making waves in the electromagnetic field making a really regular pulse almost like a lighthouse or a disco ball in the universe and every time it spins around this magnetic fields are spinning with it and it's emitting this extremely intense amount of electromagnetic radiation and depending on the orientation of the spin, you know, the axis of spin of that star to Earth, you may see weaker or, or stronger pulses from the perspective of radio telescopes on the Earth. Before we get toward the end of the show, I'd like to ask you kind of a broader question, Bob, though, Mariko, feel free to chime in too. Neutron stars are a much more esoteric topic than some we've covered on the show. It's up there with like quantum physics and Groot for how much the research might affect people's day-to-day lives. But unlike the PTSD or even AI episodes, or come to think of it, your newer line of work, Bob, in, in healthcare data science that has a you know, measurable impact on people. But can you 
talk about why it's important to study these more distant topics? I mean, literally and figuratively more distant. Yeah, sure. I'd say there's a couple different parts to it in my mind. So one, let's just start very practically. Neutron stars, what are they good for? Absolutely. Right, you could say, well, it's this really interesting object in space and I found it. Like, now what do I do with it? Well, it actually turns out neutron stars in particular, and this is true of actually a lot of exotic astrophysical objects, but neutron stars in particular have some cool uses. So we're talking about how they spin very fast. Well, it turns out that they spin with such regularity that they are some of the most precise clocks in the universe, more accurate than clocks humans can make on the earth with our best clock making technology. So there's interesting things that you can do with that. As an example, if you can find neutron stars in different places across the sky and you keep track of all of their separate clocks because you can observe their pulses if they're all pulsars, you can start to detect things that are otherwise impossible to detect. As an example, measuring sort of the motion of the fabric of space-time itself, which are gravitational waves. In this way, neutron stars are used by humans as a kind of immensely huge gravitational wave measuring device. That's sort of one practical reason why neutron stars are useful. Other reasons why it's it's just sort of a rabbit hole of knowledge of where are we, why are we here, and what's around us. Humans are continuously going through kind of a Copernican-style revolution of understanding what's around us. And there's just an innate drive of curiosity of figuring that out that I think humans will always have. And this is a key piece along the way. Another reason is just learning about these things I think it's helpful to, in some interesting way, give folks on, on Earth a kind of perspective that the universe is a big and strange place. And, you know, I worked at, at a university and the critical thinking skills and order of magnitude estimates to analyze, you know, statistics that you're hearing in the news and being able to put together kind of basic estimates. All of those kind of skills come along with just learning about neutron stars or space and science in general. And I think that it's really helpful for society to kind of have those critical thinking skills. Mariko, I mentioned before that we studied education together, which is a very sort of relatable and useful and practical to people's day-to-day lives sort of thing. Mm -hmm. What's your perspective on the importance of studying things that are less daily relevant to individual lives? I mean, I think it's just, it's a one step to understand like why we are here. And if you really think about, you know, what astrophysicists do, or I would say it's very philosophical. So I think to me, of course, it's, you know, like Bob said earlier, it has some practical side to it. For me, it's it's more on like, you know, why we are here. And it tries to answer the question of like our existence and all these philosophical um, questions that we have. Next up, we have a segment in the show called, hmm, technically, Mariko and I are going to keep quiet for two or three minutes as Bob gives us some nuance or details on anything related, even tangentially to the topic. Bob, you have the floor. I'd just like to talk a little bit about, we're talking about the science and the Marvel movies. We talked about neutron stars. I hope some of this explanation is driving home a point and it's something that I think about a lot. And it is that what's out in space is really wild stuff. (laughs) The wildest part about it is that it's real. Let's go through just as a quick summary of the life of a star. All stars are one-way streets. They start out with this amount of hydrogen gas inside them. 
And when that gas gets used up, they get crushed down. We didn't talk about one other path that can happen to a massive star, and that's a, that it turns into a black hole. You know, so if there's too much mass so that it can't be supported by the surface of a neutron star anymore, it'll collapse past that and turn into a black hole. A black hole is such a wild concept also. I suspect you may even have some room to talk about those maybe on a future episode. But imagine the density of a neutron star. And now you take that and crush it down, down, down to an infinitesimal point. It's really like you broke the universe. Imagine taking all of the mass of an entire mountain range or an entire solar system or an entire galaxy potentially <laughs> and all that mass is still there and you crush it down to a single point in space smaller than a pinhead and so the point that i'd like to bring across is like and maybe it sounds obvious or simple but i have to restate it to myself frequently is that that's real <laughs> they are really out there this is really a part of our universe the real universe is every time you look close enough, oftentimes even stranger than fiction. You had mentioned earlier, David, I think, uh, when you're asking Mariko, what is it like to, to try to move on with your daily activities when this kind of stuff is out there? I can tell you, it's definitely affected me. I mean, I studied these sorts of topics while I was in grad school, and there was a point maybe about a year or two long where, you know, I start, I stopped cutting my hair. <laughs> it's kind of like, it sounds funny, but it's, you know, if I cannot figure out what's on the inside of a black hole, then, then what's the point in cutting my hair? It can really captivate you and take hold. And I think putting it in more places, talking about it on podcasts, just like we're doing today, I think this is fantastic. Putting this kind of information in movies is fantastic. Getting out the word that the real universe is the wildest place you've ever heard of is what I'm interested in. And it astounds me every single day. Other things that are very much real that are in this category, time dilation, there's the big bang, and it's unclear why it happened or what happened before it, but we're almost certain that it happened. Black holes, space time, we haven't even gotten to quantum mechanics yet. These topics are it's just so wild when you get into the details of them. Our natural world is just this astounding and wild zoo of phenomenon. And as humans, we're living in kind of a, a pretty comfortable slice of time and space and density. But when we look around, it is a jungle out there. And I think the fact that it's real is one of the craziest things that I'd like to kind of communicate to people and draw attention to it. I think it can draw interest in science, into education, into math. In its own right, a lot of these properties are are wild and interesting, but they capture people's imaginations and kind of draw them into the STEM fields also. That's just my thoughts about taking our conversation that we had and kind of what is, you know, what else is so interesting about neutron stars? What's interesting about them is that they're really there. They're very extreme objects and there's actually going to be more things that we discover out in the universe that's even stranger than them. Awesome. Thanks. Mariko. Yes. Close us out. What are your final neutral thoughts? I'm so interested in the stars right now. I really want to see it in the sky right now. Like, Bob, are there any <laughs> neutral stars that I can see and look up? <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, if your eyes could see in radio waves, almost certainly there would be some <laughs> pulsars that you could see. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not a thing you can do. <laughs> It's very educational for me, and I think I'm going to, you know, I've heard of some keywords, so I think I have some Googling to do <laughs> to learn more. 
<laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. All right. I want to be clear as always that I love these movies. Scientific accuracy is not a necessary component for good storytelling. In fact, sometimes it gets in the way. I want to thank my guests, Mariko Sugimura and Bob Lindner for being on the podcast. Thanks for listening and cross your fingers. There's an episode 18. That's all for this episode. Thanks once again to my guests, Bob Lindner and Mariko Sugimura. That they came onto the show, especially at weird times of day for all of us, means a lot to me. I'm going to ask you a favor. Share this episode with one friend you think might like it. And if you want to go a step further, I'll ask what every small podcast asks to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. If you want to go nuts, support the podcast directly at patreon.com slash marvelsofscience. MCU audio clips were taken from Thor, Thor the Dark World, Captain America the First Avenger, Avengers Infinity War, and a certain Edwin Starr song, and all used entirely without permission. The music is a song called On Tiptoe from Purple Planet Music. That song and more royalty-free music can be found at purple-planet.com. Check out more info about each episode and its guests, including upcoming episodes, at davereinersman.com slash marvelsofscience. And find me on Twitter at marvelsoscience. Thanks for listening.